Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, the book of Esther chapter 1. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find that on page 410. Page 410, we're going to look at Esther chapter 1. We'll begin by reading the first nine verses. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was served in the golden vessels. Sorry, the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we go back today to a time very different from our own and consider a culture that's relatively foreign to our experience and and, uh, all sorts of uh, practices and customs that that are foreign and unusual to us. And yet... In the pages of Esther, we expect to find the Lord Jesus Christ, who ought not to be unfamiliar and foreign to us. We should be able to find him in here. And Lord, we thank you that we do. We thank you that we can. He's going to appear to us out of the pages of Scripture, because our heart's cry is, let us see Jesus. And so we pray that we would today. We pray that you would lift him up before our eyes, that we might believe on him, We might believe on him for salvation. We might believe on him for continuance in the faith. So, Lord, we ask you for this blessing, this this great blessing today, that we would see and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start out this morning by thinking about the concept of leverage. Who are the people in your life who have the most leverage with you in terms of your actions? Who are the people, in other words, who can readily influence and impact your decisions? Well, there are different kinds of leverage. One of the most common kinds is the leverage that those who are in authority over us have. This is the kind of leverage that causes us to slow down when we see a police car the kind of leverage that causes us to work hard at our jobs so that we can obtain a good review. 
It causes students at the end of term to get caught up with looming mounds of homework before exam time. All of us are accountable in different ways to various authorities, and we want to avoid the consequences of being found wanting. Authorities have a lot of leverage over us. But what happens when you are the authority? Who has leverage with you then? If you're the one who's calling the shots and making the decisions, how does someone get your ear? I'll give you an example. I am a husband to a wonderful, beautiful, fascinating, captivating woman. So who do you suppose has leverage over me? I'll tell you who it's that pretty lady sitting right over there. Now, according to God's design for marriage, I have authority over Lisa. I am her head. But she has an incredible amount of leverage with me. All of my significant decisions are going to involve her. She has my ear. She has unique access to me. And why does she have so much influence over me? It's because I love her. Because I delight in her. Because I'm so happy to be her husband. So when Elisa comes to me with a request, and if I'm in my right mind, I'm ready to hear her. And I'm favorably disposed toward her to grant her request. The reason she has my ear is because she has my heart in a way that no one else does. Now let's move beyond the realm of human authority. What about God? God is the ultimate authority, the king of heaven and earth, sovereign over all the workings of the universe, over all the affairs of men, over you, over me. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In his hand are our life breath and all our ways. Now hear me carefully as we start out this morning. You and I are utterly dependent on this God for everything. Without his sustaining hand, we would immediately perish. We need this God to be gracious to us, to be favorably disposed toward us. But how can we be sure that he will be? How do we know that when we come to him with our requests, he will not turn us away? How do we know that he will rescue us when we're in trouble? How can we have confidence that he will be for us and not against us? How could we possibly presume to have the favor of this great king? And it's in our text today that we can find the answers to these critical questions. See, today we're starting a new series this morning. We're diving into a six-week study of the book of Esther. This is a, a wonderful story, a charming story. It's a story of exile. It takes place at a time when God's people were ruled over by the Persian Empire. From, it takes place between, over the course of a decade between 483 to 473 B.C. And to place it in its biblical context, you know how last year we studied Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, this, is, this text occurs about 25 years before Ezra became his ministry, began his ministry. 
You could imagine Nehemiah perhaps as a little fellow playing in the streets of Susa right around the time that this great banquet occurred. Now what about this king? Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, and by the way, in a home group, if you are reading and it's your turn to read and you don't want to say Ahasuerus, just say Xerxes. Just read it right over there as Xerxes. Ahasuerus is the ruler of Persia. And he's got an empire that stretches all the way from modern-day Bulgaria and Ethiopia in the west, all the way to modern-day Pakistan in the east. And by one estimation, the Persians reigned over a greater percentage of the world's population than any other empire in history. 44% of the world's population was under this man's rule. He was essentially king of the world. And we see in these verses that we've already read, he's a glorious king. He's a glorious king. This 180-day feast is all about highlighting his greatness. It took place in 483 BC. It probably was part of a strategy meeting to plan out an invasion of Greece. Persia wanted to go to war with Greece. It was about to launch that war over the course of the next three years. Which would explain why all the army officers and the princes of the provinces were there in attendance. Because Ahasuerus is mustering all his great empire in preparation for this war. Now if you're a king, and you want the loyal support of your nobles, it makes sense to show them that the man they serve is great and powerful and magnificent. That they're part of something truly grand. And so the text says that Ahasuerus displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for half a year, 180 days. It's got to have been a truly magnificent magnificent spectacle and all to showcase the glory of this king. Then after the 180-day meeting is over, the king, for a period of seven days, throws open the doors to all his subjects who are living in the capital city of Susa. From the greatest of them all the way down to the least. So if you're a guy, you're at this party. Ladies, you're having a banquet of your own in another part of the palace with Queen Vashti. And everybody in Susa is at this party. So there's Grand Duke so-and-so over there. And over there you see the the head groom at the stables that are right around the corner from your house. And all the textiles merchants are over there sitting in one place over there. And you elbow your friend and you say, look, there's the guy. That's the guy that sold me that used chariot. And the tie rod end broke off after two weeks. Because everybody's there. Everyone's enjoying the bounty of King Ahasuerus and observing the greatness of his power. And the garden court is marvelously decorated. It's got tapestries, mosaic floor. You're looking at gold and sitting on gold and drinking out of gold. And the best food and wine is available whenever and however much of it you want. And there at the center of it all is the king in all his glory and splendor and power and magnificence. The sovereign king who is greater than all kings. Does this sound familiar? I think Ahasuerus 
by analogy, is giving us a picture of what God is like. Now don't react and don't misunderstand. I'm not saying by that that Ahasuerus is a righteous man, a holy man, or that he images God in all his particulars. But we need to listen to what the text is emphasizing about him. And what the text is emphasizing about him is that he's glorious. He's all-powerful. He's a king whose rule extends to the ends of the earth, who provides for the small and the great. And therefore, he is a king who must be served and honored and obeyed and whose commands may not be disregarded. And in those respects, he is like God. But something is about to tarnish the glory of this king. Let's read verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Memihan, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. So the queen, the, the queen is summoned before the king. She's feasting with her ladies. The king's desire is that she appear before his guests wearing her royal crown. And I think Ahasuerus believes that the consummate way to display his glory to his people is by giving them a vision of her beauty. See, Vashti represents the the apex of his majesty. She's the most wonderful treasure that he has. And his guests' admiration of her loveliness will in turn lead to admiration of him. But the queen refuses the king. And she will not come. Now as this is announced, you can imagine the whisperings that begin to circulate in the hall as the guests realize that Vashti has defied the king's command. And the king's magnificence is spoiled. He's shamed before his guests by his queen's refusal. Because who cares about golden cups and purple curtains now? The queen did not come. Now, if I can guess what some of you are thinking right now, there might be some of you who feel like applauding. Because our culture today looks at this and says, what an arrogant jerk, and good for her for standing up for herself. But, I beseech you, if that's your reaction. I I ask you to look again because the text itself which God himself wants you to hear is not making that point. This is not a passage which is establishing ethical standards for marriage. This isn't a premarital counseling text. It's not here that God is giving us instruction on whether or not a husband should ever act this way toward his wife. That is not the point. How are we to understand this situation? I think this way. The king, whose authority is absolute, seeks to showcase his glory 
through his queen, who is both his beloved and his subject. And he gives her a command to come, to show forth his glory. But she disobeys and refuses to display the king's glory. And so doing, she spurns him and tarnishes his glorious image. And if we look at it this way, then Vashti's defiance of the king begins to look very much like our own defiance of God. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the pinnacle of his creation? What was the thing that especially was designed to showcase his glory? Who did he specifically choose to bear his own beautiful image, to be a reflection of his own beauty? Who is both his subject and his beloved? We were. Humanity was. But then who refused God's command to display his glory? Who considered it a degrading thing beneath us to submit to his command? And showcase his majesty. We did. Just as Vashti spurned and dishonored Ahasuerus. So we have dispurned and dishonored the Lord God of heaven and earth. And just as the wrath of King Ahasuerus is aroused by Vashti's rebellion. So God's wrath is aroused by our rebellion. And we're going to see how the favor of the king is about to be withdrawn. With significant consequences. Let's begin reading in verse 12. In the middle of verse 12. At this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanding Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak 
according to the language of his people. We see in this section what happens when the king removes his favor. So the king goes and seeks counsel from his wise men for how to respond to the sting of Vashti's refusal. And Memucan, the spokesman, he points out that Vashti's behavior is going to give the other noble women ideas. And they paint a picture of vast domino effects throughout the kingdom as wives everywhere begin to treat their husbands with contempt. And then the husbands will respond with anger, and there will be massive domestic chaos in the empire, and everybody will be bickering. And then who will go off and fight the Greeks? So then to head all this off, he offers his counsel. Vashti is no longer to come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and the king will give her a royal position to another who is more worthy than she. The king will withdraw his favor from Vashti, and she will be exiled from his presence and banished from his love, and she'll never again Behold his face. Furthermore, she'll be replaced. His delight will no longer be on her, but he will give it to another. So we see here the severe penalty for dishonoring and refusing to give what is due to the king. She's going to pay the penalty forever, away from the presence of the king and from the glory of his power to use the language of 2 Thessalonians. Now this course of action pleases the king, and he issues the irrevocable decree that deposes and banishes Vashti, and it goes out to all the provinces, all 127 provinces, people in Bulgaria, people in Pakistan, people in Ethiopia, all hear about it. And everyone knows his favor has been withdrawn from Vashti because of her disobedience. Now let's read verses 2 to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We've seen the king's favor lost. Now we're going to see the king's favor given to another. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So once the king's anger is subsided, he remembers Vashti perhaps with sadness at having lost her. And the young men who personally attend him suggest a solution. Well, king, you you decreed that Vashti's royal place was to be given to another, so let's get going. Let's find you a new queen, one who's worthy of your favor. And so the second decree goes out. They search the whole empire for beautiful young women to be brought to Susa so that the king may find one that is pleasing to him so that his love and favor can be given to another. Well, the king likes this idea too. So let it be written. So let it be done. Now it's time to introduce the main characters in our story. So let's read verses 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, 
who had been carried away from Jerusalem along, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when so Mordecai and his young cousin, this, this girl who's his adopted daughter, Esther, they're Jews from the tribe of Benjamin. And we're going to see next week why their Benjamite ancestry is so important. But they're not living in Israel. They're living in the Persian capital itself. And the reason for this is given. See, Mordecai's family, along with the rest of Israel, had been taken from Jerusalem into exile in 597 B.C., over a century before. And even though the text does not name the Lord, and as you may know, the text of all the book of Esther never names the Lord, but this reference to the exile places the Esther story within the history of God's purposes. Mordecai and Esther are descendants of Jews, whom God cast out of the promised land because of their wickedness. And even now, they remain in exile. They're in Susa because God has brought judgment upon his people. But even in that context, even in exile, God is soon going to bring about a great deliverance. But it's, it's in order for that deliverance to happen, he has all the pieces in place. He's just about to put Esther and place her right in the center of the board. The means of God's deliverance has to be put in place. Let's read verses 8 to 14. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem into the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. All right, so it's not a surprise to us that Esther is selected for Persia's next top queen. We suspected that would happen as soon as she was described. She's beautiful of form, she's beautiful of face. And so she begins a year-long preparation. She soon finds favor, she finds favor, ding, 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 with Haggai, the eunuch who's in charge of the king's primary wives. 
And she's moved to the very best part of Karen. So Haggai's watching out for her. So's Mordecai. He, he can't get in to see her, but every day he comes and checks on how she's doing. And it may well be for her protection that Mordecai instructs her to keep her national identity hidden. Whatever his reasons, which the text doesn't tell us, the fact that no one knows she's Jewish is going to be key later on, after the plot against the Jews gets set in motion. But meanwhile, she's getting the royal spa treatment. Now I confess, as a guy, I cannot begin to imagine what any of this stuff would do, or how it would make her more beautiful. I just have to take their word for it. So you can just imagine on the bottle, oil of myrrh, for best results, apply to face 10 times a day for 180 days. For external use only, this product not tested on animals, something like that. (laughs) I don't know. But notice that what happens if Esther's not selected as queen? If she's not selected as queen, she remains and be, she'll become a concubine and she'll remain in the, in the second harem to live out her days as one of the king's secondary wives. Now it's clear, it's clear that this interview with the king is a sexual encounter for these young women. And this whole business with harems and concubines and all of it might really be bothering you. I understand once again, I would encourage you to stick with the main point of the text. And this text is not commenting on whether any of this was right or wrong. It's not interested in blaming Esther. It's not interested in blaming Mordecai. It's not even interested in commenting on the sexual ethics. This is just what's happening. Because the point is that God is getting Esther in position. That's the point. And in order to do that, she has to find favor. She has to be the one to find favor. And what the text does seem to be emphasizing is that Esther's finding favor with everyone she meets. So let's finish this part of the story with 15 through 20. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor. Ding, ding, ding. She was finding favor in the, sight, in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So this is now four years after Vashti has been removed. And now the king's favor is bestowed on someone else. Esther, 
orphan, exiled Esther goes into him, and he delights in her. And look at the terms that are used to explain how he sees her. He loves her more than all the women. She finds favor and grace with him. It's clear he's absolutely crazy about her. And so he exalts her to the highest place and crowns her as his queen. And the whole empire rejoices with feasting and a tax break. Woohoo! And the king gives lavish gifts to celebrate the fact that he's taken to himself a bride whom he loves, a bride that he adores, in whom he is well pleased. And immediately, immediately he gets blessed in his choice. This well-pleasing one is going to be protecting his welfare. She is, to coin a phrase, going to be about his business. We'll finish out the chapter. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was reported in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So between them, Mordecai and Esther saved the king's life. Mordecai's in the right place at the right time. He gets word to Esther. She goes and tells the king. She makes sure Mordecai is credited. And look how. Right away, the king already owes his kingdom, even his life, to Esther. And this vindicates his choice of her. And Mordecai's loyal action is recorded... Spoiler alert, it's written down in the official palace records. Now this is only the end of chapter 2. So we're not to happily ever after yet. There's eight chapters to go. In fact, we haven't even hit the main crisis. That's going to happen next week. But where are we in the story so far? Why does it matter that the king has bestowed his favor on Esther? Well, we're back to the concept of leverage. Who, at the end of chapter 2, who has the ear of Ahasuerus, the king of kings? Who can influence him? Who can advocate with him? Esther. Esther, that's who. She has his ear because she has his heart in a way that no one else does. And although the plot against the Jews has not yet even been set in motion, despite the fact that nobody knows that she's a Jew, now the people of God have a voice with the king. Esther's voice. God has given them an inside track. He's put in place someone who can watch out for their interests before the king. And in in a couple of chapters, the favor of the king resting on Esther will bring about the salvation of the people of God. Now, this is an absolutely terrific story. But we've heard a lot of good stories, and some of you last night watched a good story in some movie. And it's not likely going to affect your life. So why should this Why do we tell this story in church? 
rather than at the movie theater? Well, it's because this is not just the story of how some ancient Persian king was given to a young Jewish girl. This is about how the favor of God the Father is given to Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, in whom he is well pleased. See, remember what we said at the beginning. Every one of us is in desperate need of God's favor. He must sustain us. He must bless us. He must look upon us with favor. Otherwise, we will perish. But we, like Vashti, have forfeited his favor. Every one of us has sinned against him and willfully spurned him and his commands and marred the image of the glory of God that was given to us. See, he created you, he created me, so that we could showcase his glory. And we refused. We refused to do it. We sought our own glory rather than his and became defiant rebels. And kings know how to deal with defiant rebels, don't they? So the Lord has withdrawn his favor from us. In wrath, he has cast us out of his presence, all of us. We are now, by nature, banished from his kindness and strangers to his love. And we no longer have access to him. See, in the garden... We had intimate fellowship and access. He walked with us in the garden in the cool of the day. We've lost that totally now. We have no influence with it. And if that situation doesn't change, we would all be utterly lost. And yet, and yet, even though in our sin we do not have the favor of God, there is one who does. His name is Jesus Christ. And remember what occurred at his baptism. When he comes up out of the water, he sees the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and he hears the Father's voice come out of heaven, not in judgment, but in approval and affection and delight. And he says, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. See, the Father is well pleased with this one. And why does the King give his Father to Jesus, his favor to Jesus? Well, first, because he loved him in eternity past. Never. Never was there a moment before the world was when the Father failed to delight and glory in the infinite perfections of his Son, who shares his own nature and yet is distinct from him. But even more, the Father delights in Jesus because he was willing to humble himself to leave his throne, to leave his father's side, to lay aside the glory that he shared with his father, to become a man in order that he might deliver his people. God placed Jesus into position that he might be the deliverer. And Jesus alone, out of all humanity, perfectly obeyed his father as a man and always did the things pleasing to him. And that's why the father loves him as well. And then, this beloved son, so pleasing to the Father in all respects, was willing to take on the sins of all his people and make atonement for them before the king. And Jesus went to the cross 
on behalf of rebels like you and like me and came before God, stained with all their sin. And then, and then the one in whom the Father was well pleased now became the object of his most extreme displeasure. He who throughout time and eternity had only known the favor of God had that favor withdrawn from him. And instead, all the wrath, all the wrath of exile and banishment and hell was hurled against Jesus at the holy hands of God the Father. And he was cast out from the presence of God. All because of our sin. But when the full penalty for sin had finally been paid, the Father remembered him. And he raised him up from the dead and once again bestowed favor upon him, highly exalting him and giving him the name which is above every name. And he's standing there today. He's standing there today. The beautiful, well-beloved Son of God stands before the Father's throne. And he has total access to the King. And he has leverage. Such leverage with the king. Because what will the father not do for his beloved son if he asks him? See, Jesus has the father's ear because he has the father's heart in a way that nobody else does. So are you sitting here this morning as an unbeliever, as someone who doesn't know the salvation of God? Have you up till this moment refused to submit to Jesus Christ? Have you still not accepted his sacrifice as the pardon for your sin? If that's you this morning, I want to say to you, there's only one with whom God is pleased. And it is not you. His favor does not rest on you. He will not listen to you or spare you if you come before him on your own. So it is absolutely necessary that you realize you can only have access to God if the one who he loves intercedes for you. You've got to run to Jesus. You've got to cast yourself on him, the one who died and rose again for sinners like you. And you've got to beg him to carry your plea of mercy before the king. He will listen to his son. He will listen to his well-beloved. And if you refuse to do that, then you yourself will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and the king will cast you out to hell away from his presence forever. But, but at this moment, Jesus stands waiting for one more and one more and one more sinner to take refuge in him and then he will plead their case before God. So go to him. Go to him and find in him the favor of God. Now, if you know Jesus Christ this morning and you've been united to him by repenting of your sins and you've turned to him in saving faith already, then then this is a word of sweet comfort to you today. See, Jesus right now is interceding for you before the king. You have someone standing in the king's presence who is for you. He's the means of your eternal salvation. And so he asks the Father, Father, spare this one for my sake.
Forgive this one, Father, for my sake. Love this one, Father, for my sake. I died for him. I died for her. And how does the Father respond to those requests? Always, always, he replies, yes, yes, my son, I will forgive, I will love, I will embrace this one. Let him come into my presence, and I will show him all the favor that you know, because he is yours. Father always says that when the son comes advocating. And so, we who are Christ's have three access to God through his well-beloved, through the one on whom his favor rests. That means we also have God's ear. So are you suffering today? Go to him through Christ and know that the king stands ready to hear your cry. Are you caught in sin? Draw near to him through Christ and repent. Don't shrink back in fear and keep away from him in shame. He will show you mercy. You have an advocate with the Father and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. He will secure your pardon. Are you needy? Are you needy? Because you have Jesus as your older brother. That means... God is your father too. What father, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? How much more, Jesus says, will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You're a son because you're in the son. So you have access to the father. So, believer, brother, sister, your job, And your privilege is to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus by making good use, frequent use, continual use of his advocacy. He stands in God's presence for you. Use that. Leverage that. Leverage that to your eternal well-being and the well-being of those around you. It's his joy and delight that you should go right on in to the Father's presence through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we know that we have no standing here apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet your word tells us that we have all the standing in the world if we come through him on the basis of faith. So Father, we thank you that you... placed Jesus in the fullness of time you sent forth your son born of a woman, born under the law that he might, that he might take the curse of those who were born under the law. Lord, we thank you that you placed him there as our deliverer and now he stands at your right hand and we have access to you through him. Thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.